Section 3 Europe and the Faith This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe and the Faith by Hilaire Belloc Section 3 Introduction Concluded The enthusiasm of the populace he particularly comprehends. He grasps the connection between that enthusiasm and the miracles which attended St. Thomas' intercession, not because the miracles were fantasies, but because a popular recognition of deserved sanctity is the later accompaniment and the recipient of miraculous power. It is the details of history which require the closest analysis. I have therefore chosen a significant detail with which to exemplify my case. Just as a man who thoroughly understands the character of the English squires and of their position in the English countrysides would have to explain at some length and with difficulty to a foreigner how and why the evils of the English large estates were, though evils, national, just as a particular landlord, case of peculiar complexity or violent, might afford him with a special test. So the martyrdom of St. Thomas makes for the Catholic who is viewing Europe a very good example, whereby he can show how well he understands what is to other men not understandable, and how simple is to him and how human a process which, to men not Catholic, can only be explained by the most grotesque assumptions as that universal contemporary testimony must be ignored, that men are ready to die for things in which they do not believe, that the philosophy of a society does not permeate that society, or that a popular enthusiasm, ubiquitous and unchallenged, is mechanically produced to the order of some center of government. All of these absurdities are connoted in the non-Catholic view of the great quarrel, nor is there any but the Catholic conscience of Europe that explains it. The Catholic sees that the whole of the Abeket business was like the struggle of a man who is fighting for his liberty and is compelled to maintain it, such being the battleground chosen by his opponents, upon a privilege inherited from the past. The non-Catholic simply cannot understand it and does not pretend to understand it. Now, let us turn from this second example, highly definite and limited, to a third quite different from either of the other two, and the widest of all. Let us turn to the general aspect of all European history. We can here make a list of the great lines on which the Catholic can appreciate what other men only puzzle at, and can determine and know those things upon which other men make no more than a guess. The Catholic faith spreads over the Roman world not because the Jews were widely dispersed, but because the intellect of antiquity, and especially the Roman intellect, accepted it in its maturity. The material decline of the empire is not co-relative with, nor parallel to, the growth of the Catholic Church. It is the counterpart of that growth. You have been told Christianity, a word, by the way, quite unhistorical, crept into Rome as she declined, and hastened that decline. That is bad history. Rather accept this phrase and retain it. 
The faith is that which Rome accepted in her maturity. Nor was the faith the cause of her decline, but rather the conservator of all that could be conserved. There was no strengthening of us by the advent of barbaric blood. There was serious imperiling of civilization in its old age by some small and mainly servile infiltration of barbaric blood. If civilization so attacked did not permanently fail through old age, we owe that happy rescue to the Catholic faith. In the next period, the Dark Ages, the Catholic proceeds to see Europe saved against a universal attack of the Mohammedan, the Hun, the Scandinavian. He notes that the fierceness of the attack was such that anything save something divinely instituted would have broken down. The Mohammedan came within three days' march of Tours. The Mongol was seen from within the walls of Tournus, on the Seine, right in France. The Scandinavian savage poured into the mouths of all the rivers of Gaul and almost overwhelmed the whole island of Britain. There was nothing left of Europe but a central core. Nevertheless, Europe survived. In the reflorescence which followed that dark time in the Middle Ages, the Catholic notes, not hypotheses, but documents and facts. He sees the parliaments arising not from some imaginary Teutonic root, a figment of the academies, but from the very real and present great monastic orders in Spain, in Britain, in Gaul, never outside the old limits of Christendom. He sees the Gothic architecture spring high, spontaneous and autochthonic, first in the territory of Paris, and thence spread outwards in a ring to the Scotch Highlands and to the Rhine. He sees the new universities, a product of the soul of Europe, reawakened. He sees the marvelous new civilization of the Middle Ages, rising as a transformation of the old Roman society, a transformation wholly from within and motivated by the faith. The trouble, the religious terror, the madness of the 15th century, are to him the diseases of one body, Europe, in need of medicine. The medicine was too long delayed. There comes the disruption of the European body at the Reformation. It ought to be death, but since the Church is not subject to mortal law, it is not death. Of those populations which break away from religion and from civilization, none, he perceives, were of the ancient Roman stock, save Britain. The Catholic, reading his history, watches in that struggle, England, not the effect of the struggle on the fringes of Europe, on Holland, North Germany, and the rest. He is anxious to see whether Britain will fail the mass of civilization in its ordeal. He notes the keenness of the fight in England and its long endurance, how all the forces of wealth, especially the old families, such as the Howards and the merchants of the city of London, are enlisted upon the treasonable side. How, in spite of this, a tenacious tradition prevents any sudden transformation of the British polity or its sharp severance from the continuity of Europe. He sees the whole of North England rising, cities in the south standing siege. Ultimately, he sees the great nobles and merchants victorious, and the people cut off, apparently forever, from the life by which they had lived, the food upon which they had fed. Side by side with all this, 
he notes that next to Britain one land only that was never Roman land by an accident inexplicable or miraculous preserves the faith and as Britain is lost he sees side by side with that loss the preservation of Ireland to the Catholic reader of history though he has no Catholic history to read there is no danger of the foolish bias against civilization which has haunted so many contemporary writers and which has led them to frame fantastic origins for institutions the growth of which are as plain as an historical fact can be he does not see in the pirate raids which desolated the eastern and southeastern coast of england in the sixth century the origin of the english people he perceives that the success of these small eastern settlements upon the eastern shores and the spread of their language westward over the island dated from their acceptance of roman discipline organization and law from which the majority the welsh to the west were cut off he sees that the ultimate hegemony of winchester over britain all grew from this early picking up of communications with the continent and the cutting off of everything in this island save the south and east from the common life of europe he knows that christian parliaments are not dimly and possibly barbaric but certainly and plainly monastic in their origin he is not surprised to learn that they arose first in the pyrenean valleys during the struggle against the mohammedans he sees how probable or necessary was such an origin just when the chief effort of europe was at work in the reconquista in general the history of europe and of england develops naturally before the catholic reader he is not tempted to that succession of theories self-contradicting and often put forward for the sake of novelty which has confused and warped modern reconstructions of the past above all he does not commit the prime historical error of reading history backwards he does not think of the past as groping towards our own perfection of today he has in his own nature the nature of its career he feels the fall and the rise the rhythm of a life which is his own the europeans are of his flesh he can converse with the first century or the fifteenth shrines are not odd to him nor oracles and if he is the supplanter he is also the heir of the gods the end of section three the end of the introduction